For a long time, I couldn't quite figure out how to approach this class because this is like a 450-page book and we're doing it in four weeks. Um, we've been doing the Bhagavad Gita and we're taking two years. It's a book of a little, slightly larger than this. So there's a kind of a different flow that has to come into this class. Oddly enough, it took me weeks to figure out that what I would do would be 100 pages a week. Seems pretty obvious if it's a 400-page book. Um, but therefore, we're really going to be just dealing with broad trends. And let me sort of explain. We have um, a, a mixed class in the sense that some of you have been following these teachings as long as I have and have a long and a deep history. By these teachings, I mean the masters on the altar behind me, Paramhansa Yogananda, Babaji, Sri Yukteswar Lahiri, and of course you see Jesus' picture in the middle. So this whole lineage is a line of Indian gurus but the inspiring point in the center of it and the tradition, uh, the, the truth of it, as Yogananda tells it, is that it's, it's a fundamental expression of the same teaching that Jesus brought to the world 2,000 years ago. It is not a fundamental expression from the point of view of the Christian churches, but we're not seeking to please them. Many years ago, before we had this facility, we used to do a very large event for Yogananda's birthday every year, and we had to rent something that was bigger than our, than the little uh, office space we had at that time, office suite that we rented to be our church. And uh, we rented from a local Protestant church here once, and then when I went back to rent the second time, the minister somehow had picked up a little bit of who we were, which he didn't quite know before, and he um, was not so keen on letting um, the heathen in the door the way he had felt we had, you know, snuck past him the first time. And I was trying to discuss with him that in truth, you know, we, every Sunday at our Sunday service, we read passages from the Bible, we comment on them, that we draw our teachings as much from the New Testament as we do from the Bhagavad Gita. That was Paramhansa Yogananda's mission to America. Yogananda came from India in 1920, and he had a, a dispensation from his own gurus, and it was to show the unity of Christianity and yoga. And I started just talking a little bit to this man. I didn't go in great length. I didn't talk about Babaji, the deathless master who lives even now in the Himalayas and by great yogic powers. You know, I've learned a little tiny bit over the years about not pushing too hard on these things. But I, I was talking about Yogananda's devotion to Christ, and this I'll never forget this. A Protestant minister sort of drew himself up and he said, he doesn't call himself a Christian, does he? I drew myself even more. <laughs> I essentially said, you bet he does. But he doesn't draw his inspiration through the, in the churches. He draws it directly from Christ. I knew perfectly well we'd never be able to rent his facility again. You know, but, but then I didn't want his facility. We would just be on the street before I'd rent from him again. Later when I in some context or another, I was telling this story, and someone in the audience was from that man's congregation. And uh, he apologized profusely to me and told me that the minister was much more conservative than the church, and they didn't like him very much. <laughs> but the end of all that is, I'm, I want to make a, a few points here that are really important. I want to start by just talking a little bit about what inspired Swami Kriyananda to write this book. And as I said, I, I know I'm really talking to a mixed crowd here, so some of you I'll be repeating and others you'll just be hearing me, so we'll just all just enjoy this, won't we? Um, 
Paramahansa Yogananda wrote commentaries on three scriptures. He wrote a commentary on the Bhagavad Gita, which is equivalent to the Bible in India. He wrote a commentary on, the, on primarily the New Testament. He wrote a little bit on the Old Testament, mostly the New Testament. And then he wrote on the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam, which most people don't think of as a scripture. But in fact, the love described in there is infinite love, not human love. And um, Swami edited, and, and Yogananda dictated these commentaries in a flood of inspiration. And the, the finished manuscript was not really publishable in the form that he wrote it because for him it was just this enormous flow of direct perception, and it had to be cleaned up and made more orderly, and in some cases um, ideas had to be knitted together a little more clearly because he would make these huge intuitive leaps. And Swamiji, for all the years that I've known him, Kriyananda, who's the founder of Ananda, was a direct disciple of Yogananda, he always talked about writing the Gita, uh, editing the Gita commentary and editing the Rubaiyat, and whenever the question of writing about the Bible came up, he would just kind of push it aside. He's written a number of books about the Bible, The Promise of Immortality, Rays of the One Light, Rays of the Same Light. But he, would just, he was uninterested in what he essentially Yogananda's commentary. And after he finished the Gita, about two years ago, the Gita commentary, he just declared that was it. He'd done everything he needed to do. And then lo and behold maybe a year and a half ago, he just woke up in the morning and felt that a, a book was needed about Jesus' teachings and that he, he needed to comment, he needed to, to write Yogananda's commentary about the New Testament. Now, the book that he's actually written, you know, Revelations of Christ Proclaimed by Paramahansa Yogananda, is not a commentary in the same way that he commented on the Gita. All of you, most of you who read any of it know that. In the Gita, he literally goes verse by verse and explains what every single verse means. Here he you know, goes on for hundreds of pages and gives us a handful of verses. And even when he deals with verses, he deals with them kind of here and there. It's by no means systematic. But what motivated him to write this is the fact, and, and these are, this is a discussion that we'll sort of get into a little bit later, let me, let, me, uh, let me stop and I'm going to say something about this. This is a Christmas class because, because it's Christmas, almost. And uh, so the final intention of this class is devotional, which is the closer we get to Christmas, the more we want to be more and more in our hearts in a divine relationship with Jesus because there's a special dispensation at Christmas time. As I wrote when I was advertising the class, the veil between spirit and matter gets thin at Christmas. There's just this huge energy. Whenever there's an anniversary related to one of these masters, that happens. Christmas especially, because it's the only time of the year when we follow what's called the bhav. But bhav is a, the mood, a mood of spiritual devotion. Um, it's not a word that, there's no word in English for it, because we don't talk about those things in English-speaking countries. But the bhav, is the parent to the child. And it's a tremendously sweet Bob. It, it seems so odd in our minds to think of God as being our child because we, we tend to think of all-powerful and you don't think of a baby as being all-powerful. But what's really happening is that God is love. And anything that creates that intimate sense of love is the right relationship with God. And the one thing that creates it really almost more than anything else is little tiny babies. Isn't that true? Just almost everyone, as soon as you come in relationship to a little tiny baby, 
all this heart energy comes, all the facade of adulthood just falls away and just this wonderful uh, intimacy arises. And so in the Indian context, from the Indian side, which we'll talk about as we progress, that's well understood. And one of the classical bhavs, ways to worship God, is as a baby. In India, they have the baby Krishna, Gopala, and many other forms of the gods. The gods all come in baby form, so that if that's your bhav, you can you know, be a devotee of this one or another one as a baby. And the only time we do this is we do it at Christmas time. And that's one of the reasons, unbeknownst to people, why there's such an extraordinary heart-centered sense of sweetness. It's not merely that families reunite. Often families reuniting is anything but sweet. But what makes it so sweet is that we all fall into the bhav of feeling the divine in the presence of a baby, which is a very, very accessible uh, form. So before this is over, these four weeks, that's where I want to take us. And fortunately, Swamiji's book cooperates beautifully. Because in the beginning, he sets the stage for some very important truths, which is what we'll mostly talk about tonight. And then the next week will be a little bit of a continuation of this. And then the next, the last two weeks are much more deeply about our personal relationship with Jesus. Even Swamiji himself, as he progressed through this book, at a certain point, he sort of, it's a very sort of conversational book. And at a certain point, he sort of turns to the reader and he said, don't think, just because I'm talking all these philosophical ideas, that I don't love Jesus with my whole heart and soul, because I do, I do. And I believe deeply in your personal relationship with Jesus, because that is what the end point of all of this is about. So coming back a little bit to to really what we are talking about tonight and why, there's many realities to this. You know, there's a, a dual a dual a dual role that anyone in in this time and place meaning the west california um you know 2008 or 7 i skipped a year i always say it's 2008 but i i keep remembering it's not 2007 um we did not choose to incarnate in an environment that's deeply congenial to the kind of spirituality that we embrace, you know, a, 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 a not a denominationally oriented, not a form oriented, not traditional, but, but the thought that spirituality is a completely personal matter and it's a matter of our own personal relationship to our own understanding of God and spirit and that it's really up to us. It's not up to the priests, it's not up to the rituals, it's not up to how much money we pay or, you know, whatever the, the corruption might be. It's just really a personal relationship. Also, the idea of self-realization, that the purpose of life is a spiritual one. It's true that there's a kind of growing uh, movement that just takes that for granted, but almost at the same time, with with seemingly more force, but ultimately it will spend itself, and this time I think the good guys will win, which is us, Um, this fanaticism, this fundamentalism, and even more than that, that just this rampant, insane materialism, just way, way out over the top. India is really no model anymore because they're just getting sucked into it too, but they have a little more understanding than we do. They haven't been as materialistic as long, and they have a deeper spiritual tradition, a stronger, more enduring one. 
um, a, a non-institutional tradition. One of my Indian friends put it to me this way. He's probably one of the most westernized Indians I know. Um, he's our travel guide. Very successful, very multinational. I mean, he can just move from country to country and he just is at home anywhere. But he still said, he said, I would never move to America. We said, why? I mean, you'd fit in perfectly and you wouldn't have to deal with as many of the obstacles to accomplishment that you have to deal with in this country. He said, because no matter how much you people have, you're never happy. <laughs> it was just such a simple statement. You always, there's always something else that you want. And he traveled, you know, for years with many Westerners. It's just the simple truth. No matter what we have, we're never happy. We're always thinking that there'll be happiness somewhere else. Now, in that context... People who are drawn to these spiritual teachings, we were born here for two reasons. One is for our own spiritual development, because that's always the first responsibility that God has placed upon our shoulders, is that we have responsibility for our own souls. And the only influence we'll ever have over the world, it depends on the extent to which we, we cultivate the power and the presence of God in our own consciousness. At the same time, there is this reality of what's happening in the world. There's the planetary drama and there's the personal drama. And the planetary drama at this time is that the, the, the planet Earth, and this is how the masters all explain it and many other people explain it, no matter what angle they come from, we're really transitioning from a lower to a higher age. And the characteristics of self-realization, in fact, the whole movement of self-realization as the definition of spirituality is, is really the defining force of that movement. And that's where the world is going. And all of the, those who have reliable sight into the future say that you know, the conflict will increase, but there will be a time in which the, the intense materialism will fall away and this higher understanding of spirit will take place. So we... You know, I'm talking to those of you who share, you know, with me my discipleship and my dedication to serving these gurus, and we, anyone who has any attunement to this, also have a job to do here. And, and that job is to properly understand what we're doing, and not merely just sort of exist within this milieu and pretend it doesn't have anything to do with us. You know, if we are going to be uh, to raise our consciousness to be in tune with the Spirit, what the Spirit does in this world is it constantly seeks to awaken and uplift um, as many souls as are receptive. And if we actually think that we can merely take without giving back, then sooner or later we will be disappointed. Nobody has to punish us or send us to hell. We'll just discover within ourselves that this doesn't work. It doesn't work on any level. Think about it. I mean, if, if, a, if a pool simply takes in water and never lets the water pass through, it goes stagnant. If an, any individual in your life merely takes and never gives back, then gradually the, their uh, capacity to attract dries up. Who wants to give to someone who, who just holds and hoards for themselves? And even as Jesus put it in the Bible, it's more blessed uh, to give than to receive. And what he was saying there, the word blessed and the word blissful are almost the same word, and they really are the same word. It's more blissful to give than merely to take for yourself. 
And then as I progress through this, we'll talk about that. That's a self-evident truth to anyone of refinement, even though we might say, but it's also nice to get. But we mean ultimately, when we're not thinking of ourselves, that's where happiness comes from. And that's what that statement is about. Yogananda put it this way. He said, the channel is blessed by that which flows through it. It's a very interesting way to put it, which means that whatever you're an instrument, if you're an instrument for upliftment to others, then that upliftment also becomes, becomes your consciousness. You are what you express. So the more we express of generosity and goodness, the more that's who we become. Now, in the context of all of this, we, we have been born in this um, Christ-dominated country. You know, the, the real fundamental, I don't mean that in fundamentalism, but the basic spiritual understanding of this country, people call it Judeo-Christian because Jesus was a Jew and it only became Christianity after a long time. At first it was simply a renewal of Judaism and that's what Jesus was sent to do. He was sent for the lost sheep of Israel and never in the span of his life did that teaching go outside of the Jewish people or in very, you know, just only here and there. It wasn't until after it was passed away and the, the, the soil of the synagogues w- was not receptive to this new expression did Paul take it beyond the borders of Judaism. And it was very controversial when he did it. All of these things in history, you know, stay back in history, but you read in the um, letters of Paul, this intense justification for how the salvation offered by Jesus Christ would be effective on a man even if he wasn't circumcised, which is about the most peculiar conversation you can imagine when you're reading it from this perspective. You just don't even know what they're talking about. But what they were talking about was deeply important to them because circumcision was the mark of the Jewish man. And so what they were really saying was, could the teachings of Christ be effective for non-Jews? Because in the beginning, in order to become a disciple of Christ meant to convert to Judaism. If it did go beyond to the Gentiles, to become a Christian meant to become a Jew. But then Paul started asserting that you don't have to become a Jew, you just have to embrace these teachings. And there was a big fight about it. And of course Paul won, so we forget. The losers, the victors write history and everyone else just goes away. But... What's happened over time, and I'll explain it as we go progress through this class a little bit, is the tradition of India is, is a very dynamic and interesting tradition, and it says quite simply, the Bhagavad Gita, whenever virtue declines and vice predominates, a, a, a full realized expression of God takes human form in order to restore that understanding. I was just speaking here about Jesus was an avatar, which means a fully realized master, a messenger of the divine sent to the Jewish people. Because in that particular culture, the Jewish people were the only ones who had the spiritual refinement. I mean, as a group, not not every individual by any means, because it was those same people who also crucified Jesus, but they also had the magnetism to draw this master to them. And he came to correct the aberrations that had set in. Now, in the tradition of India, which again I'll explain in a moment, this is a very understandable thing. And, and, and this constant renewal of the teachings is understood. Well, Paramhansa Yogananda came to America from this Indian tradition 
And, and the express purpose of his coming was to renew the teachings of Christ. So some people think that, well, we just put Jesus' picture on the altar because it's a very smart and politic thing to do. But it isn't so, because you go to many, many, many ashrams in, in America and in India, in fact, most of them, and you don't find Christ on the altar. You might find reverence for Christ, respect for Christ, but you don't find him in the, the, the lineage of gurus in the same way that we do. I'm not saying, therefore this or therefore that. It's just that there's a very direct relationship. This teaching, Yogananda called, the second coming of Christ. In fact, the book, the commentary that is published by Self-Realization Fellowship is called The Second Coming of Christ. It's a very gutsy name, you know? I mean, that's a very... Yogananda was not afraid to taunt the establishment in that he was very similar to Jesus, who also stood in front of those powerful priests and Pharisees and just said whatever he wanted to say, whatever he felt God wanted him to say. Now... What's been happening in our culture for hundreds of years is gradually this clear and powerful teaching of, of Christ has been um, reduced and reduced and reduced and reduced, and that's what we'll talk about a little bit more, to the point where it's, it's, it's almost, not quite, because you can't quite kill the power of an avatar, but the teaching itself is just bears so little resemblance to what Christ actually taught that when someone comes in, as we do, and asserts something, there's this big fight among those who think they have a proprietary right. And something even worse has begun to happen, which is, and it's really just been in the last few years, there's been all this uncovering of these, um, you know, old documents. And merely because they're old, there's been this great commitment to the fact that they're old and they're newly discovered and therefore they must be new revelations. They must be telling us something important that we didn't know before. And because the fundamental ability to discern truth has also been gradually eroded in our culture, um, th th there's just been this tremendous chaos going on. And now the novelists have thrown their lot into it, you know, with these, uh, these stories about, you know, Jesus didn't really die and this, you know, the remarkable one about the bloodline of Christ. First of all, there is no bloodline. He was celibate which, I, I mean, I state emphatically, and I'll try to defend that in a few minutes, but he did not have children. And even if he did, God knows, you know, mere DNA does not ensure sanctity. I mean, the world is just fraught with just far less mysterious examples of great men spawning far less than great offspring. You know, it just doesn't mean anything. But there's just been, it's been put out with such intensity and there's been such a vacuum of true understanding that even people who are very sincere in their devotion to Christ, even people who have a deeply heartfelt and intuitive connection are finding themselves completely rattled by this assault and, and unable to really good, give solid answers. I have to say, I was speaking to my husband tonight, I've had more than one conversation with dear friends in this congregation, trying to explain to them why, why it couldn't possibly be true, why it's a travesty even to think that it's true, and it's profoundly and fundamentally dangerous to say that after Jesus was crucified, he got up again and married, married Mary Magdalene, and they went off and raised a family in Kashmir. It just, it's, it's so insidious, 
to what true spirituality is, but we're so confused that just quite literally, Swami just woke up one morning and said, somebody has to do something. And he, he did not feel, even though there's a, a thousand-page commentary on the New Testament published as authored by Paramahansa Yogananda, it's profoundly edited, so it's a little bit hard to say he was the pure author of it, but nonetheless, it's his teachings. But it won't capture people's... There's a curse on this sort of thing, so we can never use used batteries. I don't care what the meter says. We always have to use new ones. <laughs> um, it's just my karma. There's a set of gremlins, specific gremlins, that are born, they incarnate to sabotage the sound system when I'm on the microphone. They're my own little, I don't know what they are, but they are. I call it the curse of the mummy because it has this like mysterious power from the past. It comes like the Egyptian mummies. Anyway, on with it. So, I was saying about this. Oh, Swami, Swami just said, you know, somebody has to do something about this. And so therefore, I want to, you know, really take us through the beginning arguments, so to speak, of this book. And this is also an interesting book. There's something else you have to understand. Swami wrote a book called God is for Everyone. And that was uh, taken from a book that Yogananda wrote called The Science of Religion. Science of Religion? Yes. And uh, in God is for Everyone, and also Swami wrote another book called Out of the Labyrinth. This is not just going to be a bibliography, but he wrote another book called Out of the Labyrinth. Out of the Labyrinth is called For Those Who Want to Believe But Can't. And God is for Everyone is a long effort to persuade people that the, the nature of the divine is bliss, and bliss is what everyone seeks. There is no one who is not seeking to escape suffering and to experience pure happiness. And that is the definition of God, and therefore everyone is seeking God. So it starts from the premise that maybe you don't accept that. Now this book is written for those, I think what he calls it, how does he put it? to those sincere Christians whose faith has been shaken. So he starts with the fundamental premise that he doesn't have to prove the existence of God. He just starts the discussion from the point is all we have to do is straighten out this terrible confusion that has set in. So, so the whole, um, if you try to take this book and you try to analyze all the arguments, you'll find that there's lots of gaps in what he tries to persuade because he's speaking from a certain point. Swamiji, whenever he writes a book, he always clearly conceives of who he's writing to. So he was writing, that's the audience that he's speaking to, but for those of us who are, who are living through these times and need, need to put out the mental energy to be clear about what we're doing and also have an obligation to be clear for the sake of others, you know, that, that's what he's also talking about here. So, um, are we all on the same page? Is there any comments or thoughts about what I've said so far? Is my voice audible? It feels kind of garbled to me, but okay. <clears throat> so I'm going to just start out in this book, and this is, you know, I'm, as I said, I'm doing 100 pages, so I'm not doing anything in detail. He starts out trying to explain what has happened to Christianity as Christianity has gradually evolved from the original pure teachings of Christ into what he would call churchianity. And when Swamiji was writing this book, 
You know, he's, he's, he, he systematically attacks pretty much every institution there is. We, we kept an informal list. He went after the Catholics, the Protestants. He goes after the Jews eventually. He, he, he makes short shrift of the um, form-bound Hindus. He attacks intellectuals. He attacks novelists, you know, it's sort of like scientists. I mean, it, it became a joke, and attack is really the wrong word, but it, this is perhaps the last book he may ever write, and he just felt like at this age he doesn't have to be really careful. There's another aspect about what he was trying to do here, which is also important to understand, which is the argument about Christianity right now is taking place on the level of whether or not he was actually resurrected. He was, he wasn't. Or whether or not the recently released Gospel of Judas really tells us something that we need to know. Um, Swamiji was trying deliberately to write a book that would be very controversial. And I don't think it will succeed in becoming controversial tomorrow, but, but after it was published, he actually had our publisher send it to as many people as possible who would hate it. <laughs> because he wanted the arguments and the ideas that he presents to become the definition of the controversy. And so the definition of the controversy is who has the right to declare what is and is not the true teaching of Christ. And so he, that's the point that he starts at. He, he starts with the question simply, who are the true custodians of religious teaching? So he, he starts with the fact that you know, the Catholic Church is sort of the definition of churchianity, even though the Protestant movement and everything is very strong, and there's a, a thousand variations on all of this now. But the Catholics epitomize this um, an institutional approach to religion, which is a uniquely Western idea. And so he talks about just the fact of church authority and, and tries to just dismantle from the inside because he himself was part of a, a strong religious organization for 14 years, which essentially tried to emulate the Catholic Church in the end, following all the pitfalls of institutional religion. And he just talks about how you know, people tend to replicate themselves. And when you start becoming an institution with institutional needs and institutional dogmas and administrative needs, he puts it so simply. He said, if you need a good accountant, you're going to look for an accountant. You're not going to look for a saint. And the, and the saint may be a far worse accountant than the accountant. And if what you need is a good administrative type, that's what you'll be looking for. But then, of course, you're not working just with a business. So you have to start speaking in terms of spiritual authority. And if the institution is going to become the arbiter of what is spiritually true or not, and the institution only exists as the face of individuals, then you begin to get into this way of thinking that equates position with realization, you know, and in fact, it gradually becomes church dogma. You know, the priest can forgive your sins. You go to the priest, you confess. He, he absolves you of what's wrong with you. At the end of your life, the priest does this little ceremony and all the sins that you've done are gone. The priest decides, you know, what is and is not acceptable. But the problem is that as long as you're working within this humanly created framework, with this humanly created individuals, the, you, you, can't, you don't advance spiritually merely by advancing in your position. I, there's a, a fascinating story I read that was, that's called I Was a Monk. And it's written by a man named John somebody, I don't recall his last name, just a little thin volume. <clears throat> and this man, is a, it's, a, it's a, the epitome of what Swami is talking about here. He was a, a very devoted young man, and in, the, in his early teens he entered 
uh, a Catholic order and became a, a, a priest. And he was very intelligent and very hardworking, and he became very well educated, and he rose in the ranks of the church. And he was eventually, he was from Indiana, and he eventually went to Rome, and he started teaching in the Catholic University, and he became influential in the Vatican, and was an extremely happy priest. He loved his priestly life, but he was so um, determined and energetic that he, he overextended himself. And after 25 years or so, he, he just was exhausted. So his brothers in the order arranged for him to take a sabbatical, and they sent him to some beautiful place in Switzerland. This is all the true story he tells. And for the first time in his life, he, he was forbidden to be busy. And he just found himself sitting, basically, for, for days and days and days, as he put it on the balcony of this beautiful little hotel, looking out of the extraordinary beauty of this Swiss valley, with just nothing to do but contemplate the beauty of it. And because of, of the sincerity of his true spiritual interest, in that setting, he had a direct mystical experience. He had, a, he had an experience um, that was that uh, he, he perceived, he had a direct intuitive perception of Christ, of, of the nature of reality, of an experience of God. And in that direct experience, he realized that all the theology that he had studied and was now teaching was false. He could see that between actual revelation and this careful articulation of it, that it was nothing but man-created articulation. It was not the real experience. So this man, from being totally contented and happy in his life as a priest, suddenly was obligated to resign. And he, he had no, no um, alternative except to resign because he could no longer embrace um, this man-created religion when he had had an experience of the true religion, which was totally within his own self. And his brothers came and pleaded with him, but there was nothing he could do. So he had to walk away from that life. And here's the ironic and fun part of it. He ended up <clears throat> coming back to America he went to Southern California. He eventually married and raised a family. He became an actor in Hollywood, and he specialized in playing priests <laughs> and holy persons because he was a holy person, and he knew how to do it. He could do it beautifully. I mean, he was an actor in the 20s and 30s. But the other interesting part is that he undoubtedly knew Paramahansa Yogananda because he was friends. He mentioned specifically Amalita Galakuchi, who was a famous opera singer, who was a very intimate disciple of Yogananda's. And in his book, there's one sentence that's Yogananda's words, spirit is center everywhere, circumference nowhere. That's a direct quote from Yogananda. He never mentions it because I think it, it would have diminished the credibility of what he was saying at the time that he wrote the book. But it, it just, it so beautifully expresses the reality of it. It's not that one becomes disillusioned necessarily, it's that one transcends. So Swamiji talks about the fact that, you know, what Jesus was talking about was direct experience. He was talking about, and Paul described it, I die daily, be therefore perfect. The kingdom of heaven is within. And he didn't mean within the walls of a church. There was no church. Jesus' entire battle was with this institutionalized religion that had taken away from people the right to determine their own relationship with God. 
mean, that's what had happened to Judaism at that point. Judaism is a true religion. Moses was, a, was an avatar. And Judaism was taught as, the, as what we call Sanatan Dharma, which I'll speak of in a moment. So Jesus, but Jesus had to break down that whole institutional idea. And he was profoundly criticized. You know, if a, some, if a sheep, you know, you're healing on the Sabbath, you're not obeying the rules, your followers are not doing the ritual washing. And Jesus just went like that, just scorned it all like this. What do your laws matter? God is a God of love. If you ask of your father a, a loaf of bread, will he give you a stone merely because you haven't followed these hundreds of rules? And they were always, the Pharisees were always trying to catch him up in the rules, and Jesus just stood his ground with tremendous ferocity. And that's what he urged on his followers, was not mindless adherence, but an opening of the heart in love to the Father. Now, the experience of God is the definition of spirit and religion. And everything else is just this poor, feeble attempt by Westerners, mostly, trained in the sort of the logic of this either-or logic, to take that revelation, which is an experience, and then put it into words. Now, Swamiji argues, and obviously, that those who have had that experience are the ones who can declare what's true and what isn't. I was, you know, the hypnosis that scholars, because they're very intellectual and can reason, and church authority, because they have the tradition behind them, have more rights, was illustrated to me by a friend who is an Episcopal priest, now retired, and also a devotee of this path. He managed to maintain both identities. He said the only difference between self-realization and the Episcopal church is one word of four letters, which is only, the only Son of God. Now, that's not entirely true, but it, it worked for him. <laughs> so it just, because only son of God has an esoteric meaning. But he meant the way it's meant in, in that wrong sense. But I asked him some question about the early Christians. <clears throat> I asked, I, I, I realized from reading the Acts of the Apostles that the, the, one of the things that the disciples did right after Jesus died was they all formed cooperative spiritual communities. That's what they actually did. And... Uh, they just got together in a communal sense. They reorganized the way they lived. This was, in truth, an expression of the Essene communities, which were the remnants of true Judaism to which Jesus came. These are what I believe to be true traditions that have you know, come to light more. But uh, <clears throat> um, I asked him some question about some aspect of early Christianity, and this is what he actually said to me, to his subsequent embarrassment later. He said, well, the, the full teachings of Jesus were not really fully expressed during his lifetime. The full teachings only gradually came out over the centuries that followed. I mean, this he'd been to Yale Divinity School or something, and this is what they taught him. I just sort of looked at him for a minute. I said, you know, Jesus was a fully self-realized master, and you think he didn't know what he came to teach? You think it took a couple of centuries of church people and intellectuals to really figure out what he meant? Don't you think that it's slightly reversed, that Jesus had it right, and then it took a few centuries until they corrupted it into something they could understand more? And he, to his everlasting credit, just, you know, we were very good friends and I could tease him like that. And, and then he just talked about how everything used to be more orderly in his life until he met me. Because <laughs> I was the one who introduced him to these teachings. But you see, that is how the mind works, isn't it? 
when I first read the commentaries of Jesus, of Yogananda on Jesus' teachings, I was raised Jewish, fortunately with no prejudice against Christ. When I was 10, I asked my father, Daddy, how come we don't believe that Jesus was the Messiah, we being the Jewish people? And my poor father, he was too honest to lie to me, and he wasn't interested enough to really know. So he hemmed and hawed and tried to give me some scholarly or, you know, or rabbinical explanation, and I was considerate and intuitive enough to see that he didn't have the foggiest idea what he was saying, and rather than embarrass him further, I changed the subject, <laughs> you know, but, um, but I wasn't born with prejudice, I was just a clean slate, but interestingly enough, even with a clean slate, you know, a tremendous amount of con- the conventional understanding of what, who Jesus was and what his life was just came in through my pores without ever studying it. And when I was reading the, the true nature of Christianity and what Jesus really taught and how far away it is from what people call Christianity and how completely irrelevant institutional religion is to it, how completely nothing, it has nothing to do with institutional religion. I, can, I literally remember I was, I was in a period of seclusion. I was sitting outside of the little trailer where I lived. In the middle of the day, there wasn't a soul around. And all of a sudden, I just had to close the book because I, I, I deeply felt that I was in the presence of truth. And I was in the presence of truth that had never been spoken to me before. And especially at that time, which was 35 years ago, a truth that was rarely spoken. And, and it was a very important um, epiphany, which I want to offer to all of you also, which is a great deal of what we, we don't question should be questioned. And I'm not speaking that we should be rebellious, but we should always stop and ask ourselves, who said that and why do I think that's true? You know, why do I really think that's true? We fall into these habits. A friend of mine who used to be very politically active, um, you know, she just falls into this habit of sort of defending the liberal political agenda. And when she stops and thinks about it, it's, it doesn't really conform to what she's really thinking now, but we have these habits of thinking. And if we really want to have the right relationship with Jesus, we have to just jettison all of this baggage of this is what the church says and that's what the church says. It doesn't make any difference. Yes, there's remnants of truth in it because they, you know, they every once in a while, they, they don't miss it entirely. God works through those forms too. But it's the saints It's those who have demonstrated in their own lives the same states of consciousness who can, who we we know either from our intuitive experience with those great souls or from the testimony of those who knew them, who manifest in their lives the signs of spirituality that the Bible itself, you know, lists out for us. Humbleness, truthfulness, self-abnegation, self-forgetfulness a willingness to sacrifice for others, willingness to lay down one's life for one's friends, a perfection of selfless love, an impersonal attitude toward one's own life. All of these great qualities, and those are the ones who have the right to speak. And so Swamiji talks about the fact that, you know, an emergency has arisen in the life of Jesus, in the teachings of Christ. Because these teachings aren't just thrown out and expected to go away. They have an enduring, everlasting reality. And the crisis has arisen because even the Christian saints 
you know, if they're going to preserve any level of their own influence, are not really allowed to speak out. Because saints are very inconvenient to church authority. Because once you have an individual, as, as Swamiji puts it, all priests are supposed to be ordained equally. And then if you have a priest who seems to be far more ordained than any of the others, it just wreaks havoc on the system. Padre Pio was a very recent example. And you know, just in the last century, he bore the marks of the stigmata on his own body. And he was a great master. He was able to, he demonstrated in many different ways his power. He was very, very famous also for a time and was one of, for a period of time, was the most photographed man in the world. But then the church buried him, <laughs> you know, just forbid him to, to do mass. He would, he would come and do mass. And, you know, mass would normally take, what, 40 minutes or something like that. His masses would last three hours because, you know, every element that for others was just symbolic was for him a reality. You know, when he would pick up the host and it was impregnated with the consciousness of Christ, it was Christ. That's what he saw. That's what he experienced. Because there is some truth in there. Say, uh, Teresa Neumann, who was also a great Christian mystic, the, she didn't eat at all for 40 or 50 years. The only thing she would take in was a, was a consecrated wafer. And if it wasn't consecrated, she would know that and she would spit it out. She wouldn't be able to take it in. Because it, it was very real. So Padre Pio, they, he, was, he was Italian and they moved him to this obscure um, hamlet in the south of Italy. But, you know, in Italy they know saints. They, they, they understand from the heart. And people in that country just recognize and they trust their intuition. So hundreds and thousands of people flock to Padre Pio's um, church and he would give, they, so they would schedule him to give mass like at six in the morning. So the people would line up at 4 a.m. <laughs> and when the doors would open, they would rush in. And hundreds of people would sit there entranced for three hours while he gave the mass. For 10 years, the Vatican refused to allow him to give mass because it was just so disruptive. They just didn't know how to explain this because salvation comes through the dogma of the church and everybody's following the dogma and then this man is turned into a giant. At the same time, after they're dead, they canonize them and revere them. But while they're there, they give them a really hard time. It's just consistent all the way through. But even the fact that Padre Pio continued to do the mass. But, what, but the reality of it is, and Swami tells the story in this book, because Padre Pio lived into the 80s, 1980s. A friend of Kriyananda's went to Padre Pio for confession because everybody in Italy is a Catholic. Even if you practice Kriya, you're just a Catholic. You can't not be a Catholic in Italy. And uh, <clears throat> so he went to, for confession to Padre Pio and he said to Padre Pio, I practice Kriya Yoga. And here's what Padre Pio said back to him. Shh, don't talk about that here, he said but you're doing the right thing. <laughs> so he encouraged him to do it. He knew about it. He even once told someone, go to SRF. And, and, and I think Padre, they said, what is that? Because they'd never heard of it. And Padre Pia says, I don't know, but that's what I'm supposed to say to you. And just send him to Master. But the Catholics, the saints, if they want to do any good within the church, they can't challenge the church too much. So basically, what Swamiji explains is that the revelation has to come from outside. It has to be someone who has spiritual authority and is, is completely unbound 
by any of the restrictions that are imposed upon those who rise from within. Plus, it had to have the fresh, complete fresh energy of just casting aside everything that isn't um, of this time and place. Interestingly, you see, this was Yogananda's assignment not only on on the western side, but also on the eastern side. Because when we finally went to India for the first time, which was now 20 years ago, after I'd been on this path for 15 or more years, I realized that what Yogananda taught is no more Hindu than it is Catholic. You know, we tend to think of him as being Indian, but he's really no more Indian. He's not either of East or West. He took Hinduism and did the same thing he did with Catholicism. He plucked the tiny bit of truth out of it and then brought it together. The true teaching of Krishna in the Bhagavad Gita is something else, and that's what Swami describes as Sanatan Dharma. You know, in the, in the great sort of history of the world, India has been the custodian of the true understanding of religion. It just is. Now it's going through this intense materialistic phase. Swamiji puts it as, he says it this way, it's unfortunate, but India is far too important to the history of the world to remain backward. So it has to, it has to come up to the level of the rest of the nations. But there is this deep indigenous understanding in the soil of that nation of the true nature of reality, and they have maintained, without a shred of institutionalism, probably because of that, the truth of these teachings. And the fundamental teaching that they offer is called Sanatan Dharma. And Sanatan Dharma is one of the most useful concepts in talking to people about the nature of religion. So it's, it's something really good to understand. Because Sanatan Dharma means eternal truth. It's not a religion, even though some sects in India have now tried to claim it as the name of their own religion, but that's a complete misuse of it. Sanatan Dharma is the concept of what is true. Sanatan Dharma is science. You know, the scientists all over the world, they conduct the same experiments and they discover the same truths. Isn't that so? You know, the nature of the atom, you know, the, the, way, the way structures work, the way botany is, the way biology is. People innovate, people make further discoveries, but what they're discovering is simply the way things are. They go out into outer space, they do the chemical experiments, and it always comes out the same because it's the nature of reality. Why anyone would imagine that religion would be any different is, is really the question because if we're talking about an absolute truth, it just simply has to be what it is. It's the nature of the way things are made. And Sanatan Dharma is the way things are. And the way things are is that the, all of creation is a manifestation of the infinite, that the power of the spirit lies within us, that our happiness lies in our greater attunement with that spirit, and, and throughout the ages, realized souls come to explain to us and to inspire us again and again and again with this truth. Then, mankind grabs it and makes religions out of it. But religion is not Sanatan Dharma. Religion is what happens after Sanatan Dharma. As Swamiji says, Sanatan Dharma itself even is not revelation, because re- revelation is a direct intuitive experience. And everything else is some effort to put that into words. When I was in India, I have been in India, uh, there's a lot of uh, deities, you know, and this is one of the confusing things about Hinduism. You have all these pictures of, of gods and goddesses, and some of them are just utterly bewildering. And one of the really amazing ones is the goddess Kali. 
And, you know, she has this long, she's a dancing figure with all this long black hair and she wears a garland of skulls and she holds a, a saber up like this and she has her tongue hanging out in bloodthirstiness and she has her foot on the chest of her husband, Shiva, who's also a, a, a deity. <clears throat> Just completely insane as far as the Western mind is concerned. And she holds one hand out in blessing and the other hand with a sword like this. You know, I've led uh, for 20 years, every few years we would lead a pilgrimage group to India. And I love the culture of India and I would try really hard to explain this. And Swami's explained the symbolism, but I never could get it. And, and the time of year that we would go was often what they call Kali Puja, which is Puja means a worship. And the way it, it works in that culture, because the whole culture is spiritually oriented, the little neighborhoods would get together and they would all pool their resources and they would build just right on the street. They'd sort of like close off most of a block and they'd make this huge statue of Kali and then you go a few blocks and there'd be another and they would, oh, in good-natured fun, they'd compete with each other to make the most gorgeous ones. So going through Calcutta, you're just every few blocks, you're confronted. You're in this big bus and suddenly you look out the window and there's some, you know, there's this saber and there's this garland of skulls and you're supposed to, you're supposed to worship this? You know, it's like, it's not our concept. Blessed Jesus, meek and mild, with the little sheep over his arms, his neck. It's not our picture. And I was trying to be a good sport, but in all honesty, I didn't know what the heck was happening. And one day we were in a crowd, and, and you know, we were sort of being pushed by the crowd, and I ended up getting pushed right close, very, very close to this Kali statue. And so when I turned around and realized where I was, she was right there, like this. And it was, it was just shocking to my nervous system, <gasps> like this. The last thing I felt was deep devotion. And I, I sort of like intensely prayed to God, what is this? Because I know this is not a backward culture. I know this is something very refined. I just don't get it. And all of a sudden, several things occurred to me, which is Kali, Kali is not God herself or himself. Kali was some image it was some effort on some great soul's part who had a revelation, who had a direct perception of reality and then, then did something to try to communicate that to people. And, and I began to try to like look past it and I, this is what I began to feel. Life is a lot like Kali, isn't it? You know, there's just this sort of frantic movement to it. There's this life and death energy. The same force which cuts off your head also blesses you even by cutting off your head? Isn't that what it feels like? And there's this sort of wild dance going on, and yet there's this um, other energy behind it. It's just, and I suddenly thought, this is a magnificent image. This is so true to what it really feels like, a certain aspect of, of expanded consciousness. And it's not that Kali is true, but somebody took revelation and expressed it. And that's the balance point that we have to understand. All of the efforts by churches are just trying to express somebody's revelation, but it isn't the revelation. You know, holding up the wafer is Padre Pio. He's trying to say, look, you know, if you with reverence accept the, the, the power and presence of God incarnated as Jesus, or the Christ consciousness behind it, however you think of it, if you literally take it into yourself. I mean, what could be a more obvious symbol? 
than to open yourself and put it in your mouth and swallow it into you. Except to say the kingdom of God is within. And also that grace can be transmitted through the souls who have it. Because that's another aspect of Sanatana Dharma is that God works through instruments. That, you know, the concept of guru, the concept of self-realized master coming to deliver to us this power. In the Bible it says, as many as received him. To them, Jesus gave the power to become like him. That's a deep truth that's being stated there. That's not a dogma, that's a truth. Receive it in the mouth. That's a somebody's attempt, a great soul's attempt to take revelation and put it into a form that those who have ears to hear can grasp it, you see? Isn't that marvelous? But, but if we want to stay true, we have to use those as doorways, not as endpoints in themselves. All right? Why don't we take a little bit of a break? been established by our own experience. And Swamiji talks at great length about how far from being so different from one another, we're all enormously alike. I mean, we all have essentially the same bodies. We all have the same nervous systems, the, the conditions of life, the building blocks of creation. It's the same no matter what planet you go to. It, it's always the same in the experience that we have, the way our bodies work, what gives us satisfaction, what gives us happiness. Th- thousands of years ago, thousands of years in the future, on this side of the globe, the other side of the globe, on other planets, there is the way that we're made. And, you know, affirming the ego, emphasizing the ephemeral pleasures of the body, grasping for ourselves, trying to hold on to this small identity, it never works. And all spiritual teachings talk about this, you know, unconditional love, this, as Swami puts it so simply, expanding our sense of reality beyond the ego to embrace ultimately all of creation, literally, but just even on a step-by-step basis. And anyone who teaches anything different than that is simply going against human nature, and sooner or later, it will fall to pieces. The, the, the principles of India, the way they've preserved religious purity is completely the opposite of the West. The West decided, we've got to get this organized. We can't have all these differences of opinion. We have to make decisions about what's true and what isn't. We have to issue dogmas. We have to hold everybody in line. What they decided in India was, oh, just let people follow any will of the wisp they want. The ones that were true are true will endure, and the ones that aren't will just die of their own. Because if it doesn't deeply and truly transform our consciousness and bring us bliss, people will simply lose interest in it. And you can go to all this trouble to try to keep it alive, but the very effort of trying to keep it alive is what kills it. That's the irony of it. And that's the way that the truth has been kept alive in India is by allowing, essentially, nature to run its course. Just the way we see, and you know, if, if something is weak and aberrated, sooner or later it just dies. And just look around. I mean, I've been in the spiritual teaching for 40-some years now, and you know, there's been a lot of flashes in the pans. There's this one teacher... He, he, we, we were so, we laughed so much. I mean, he just became more and more outrageous in his claims for himself until finally, literally, he was taking out full-page ads with his, um, his resume in it. And his resume included all of his accomplishments of past lives, which, you know, he was basically every notable, every notable figure, you know, in every notable figure in spiritual history had been him. He wanted us to all know. But, you know, it's like, none, how do you, Swamiji offers the simplest um, 
Well, the simplest, I mean, the, I mean the, the simplest way of testing it is our own experience is the, is the barometer of things. And it doesn't mean that we can just, from our little human egos, you know, dispense this truth. But we have a, a, an intuitive understanding of what works. And what Swamiji says, if you can't verify it with your own experience, he said, at least treat it with uh, caution until you can verify it. When I first met Swami Kriyananda, which I've written about in the Swami Kriyananda as we have known him, I, I have to say, and there's no way to describe it otherwise, I had an instant recognition of him. So when Swami Kriyananda writes about finding autobiography of a yogi, the first time he didn't instantly recognize the book, but the second time he did. And he said just in a matter of moments, he just formed this alliance with Yogananda, which 60 years later has never shifted. Well, when I met Swami, I had that intuitive, un just instantaneous belief in myself that, that he was a true teacher and that the teachings he had were the teachings I wanted and that he could transmit it to me. I had a friend of mine, actually, who happens to be a highly trained investigative policeman in India. When he read that, he started sort of querying me. This seems a little impulsive, don't you think? Isn't it a rather irrational decision he said like that? I said, well, I would have thought so too, except now it's 40 years later, so it looks like there was some substance to it, don't you think? And he had to admit that that was fairly compelling evidence. But the fact was, even with that very strong feeling, I didn't move beyond my actual experience. Which is, there were years and years in which I, I believed my hypothesis was true, but I was continually conducting an experiment to prove by my own experience that it was. Which is to say, I, I practiced the teachings, but I asked questions. I observed Swami Kriyananda and I listened respectfully to him, but I disagreed when I felt to disagree. I watched his relationship to others and I just kept accumulating evidence. It was evidence accumulated. The reason I was interested enough to accumulate evidence was because I had a fundamental belief that the evidence would prove my belief. I was interested. I had this... Uh, to me, amazing conversation, it might not be amazing to you, with friends who are academic researchers. And my friend was in a very difficult position because the grant that um, she had received, she did all her experiments and the hypothesis that she had asserted proved to be false. And this was an, a very serious problem for her career because now that her experiment had proved false, she was going to have difficulty getting more grants. And I just, you know, because I'm such a novice on these things, I backed up and I said, just wait a minute. You mean to say before you conduct an experiment, you have to know that what you're going to experiment is going to prove to be true? In other words, your experimentation is just to document what you already know to be true? I said, it seems to me that your research was a success. You had a theory, it was proved wrong, so now you've done what you set out to do. Oh, no, 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 she said. You have to always succeed, otherwise you can't get more grants. I said, doesn't this seem kind of stupid to you? You know, and of course, she suddenly, what happened? We were having dinner together. She, first she said, that's an unusual perspective. And then she began to laugh and laugh. You know, just like the emperor has no clothes. I thought you were scientists. You're not scientists, you're just sort of money machines. But... There is this first belief, but we have to be very honest. We have to be extremely honest. 
And we, but then we have to know what the right criteria is. And Swamiji says several things, you know. He said there's one of the most, I won't say everything, but this was one of the things that he was talking about how you can tell a, a true scripture from a false one. This is very relevant because all these documents are coming up. No, somebody gave me the Judas gospel, whatever it was. I, I don't want to be presumptuous, but there was no magnetism in that book. And the, even the concepts were dumb. You know, there just was nothing in it except that it was old and that it was radical and that it undermined everything we all, we all want to think. You know, it was just um, different. But Swami describes this. He says, tr- first of all, true scripture has real power. You know, it just has power in it. That's why you can read and reread the Bible. That's why you can pick up the Bhagavad Gita. That's why you can pick up Swami's commentary on the Bhagavad Gita. And many of you have read that, or this book. You just start reading it, and something happens to your consciousness. It's just not like reading an ordinary book. And I picked up the Judas Gospel, whatever it was, or one of the others. I've read a number of them. Because I'm interested. I'm open-minded. It's fascinating to me. I know there's many suppressed truths. I really want to know them. But you start reading this extremely pedestrian language, and there's, there's no power behind it. It's just words. And then you pick up true scripture, and it just has this force. And the other words we want to use, it's corroborated from your own experience. There's just something in it. And it tells you, you know, who he who lives by the sword dies by the sword. Or more challenging phrases, I come not to bring peace, but a sword. You know, and you realize that if you embrace these spiritual teachings, it's not going to make your life easier. Because another characteristic, and it, and it doesn't say something different than has always been said. True scripture corroborates all true scriptures that have come before. We have this incredible fascination for difference here. But... If you're talking about absolute truth, you're going to have to be talking about another facet of the same diamond. You can't move over and start talking about coal dust as if that was the reality of it. You can refine it. You can look at it from another angle, but you can't repudiate it. And here's another quality, which is a little bit harder to get. And this, I think, is the crux of what's going on right now in our culture. Which is, Swamiji says, you know, true spiritual teaching The revelation, the true revelation, transcends this whole plane of existence. It's not just making yourself a little more comfortable here. It's not, oh, you can have it all. You can be really spiritual and you can do all these things and you can call yourself this and then you can be really beautiful and then you can have all this money and you can have this fancy home and you can have this and this. There is truth in using spiritual power to manifest and express in this world. And that's not a false teaching. I mean, look at Swami, look what he's done, look at Master. You know, the secret is a true secret. It really does exist. And it's part of our duty as disciples to become as powerful as the divine itself and to be able to will into existence any good thing that we are inspired to do. That's, a, that's an important part of spiritual development. But that isn't spirituality. Spirituality is complete understanding that this is a transitory reality and that my true home is in the Spirit. That that's where we go. We go into the Father. We are perfect even as the Father in heaven is perfect. And it isn't about the pleasure of this world. There was another book that somebody just gave me all about how Christianity is really a celebration of being happy here and now. And that this whole business they assert of the resurrection and the crucifixion was only inserted later 
that really it's just about having a good time right here and making this world a paradise. Well, no true master has ever taught that, and there's very good reason for it. Just try it. Try to actually grasp this world as this world, as a human being, in a human body, and make it stay still and stay happy. You know, it just doesn't work. It just, you know, I'm right now I have, I have a very dear aunt and uncle. You know, my uncle's 93. He's been a wonderful man. He's done wonderful, many wonderful things, but his life is so frustrating to him now. You know, in all that time, now he's just in the disintegrating stage of his mind and his body. And, you know, he, he has a good attitude. He's brave. But it's so difficult to see. And how many of us, we, we go along, we think everything's just going to be wonderful. And then something swoops in from the back. And if we manage to have the good karma to just like make it through one incarnation, there's still, if you're honest with yourself, always this deeply held, you know, sense of, will I make it? Will it last? Will I be able to do it? Swamiji put it another way. He said, most people, by their time they're 40, you know, they're no longer imagining that all their dreams are going to come true. They're just like trying to cut their losses and just get through. I remember an argument I had with my father toward the end of his life. I was uh, trying to persuade him of something or another. God knows what it was now. And we were just intensely going at it. And I finally just said something to him which I thought was so self-evident. Don't you want to keep growing? He said, no, just like that. You know, I've had enough. I just want to basically minimize the pain from now till the end of my life. And, you know, we can pretend it's different, but it isn't. You're happy for a while, then you're sad. Anything that you grasp with your ego, you have these wonderful sensual experiences and these wonderful sense-oriented things, and you get everybody just right, and then it goes away. And if it's not outright tragedy, it's certainly disappointment. The only, and then Swami points out, it's so brilliant the way he says it. And then when it proves disappointing to us, we always retreat back into ourselves. We withdraw from the world because we instinctively understand that that's where the peace that we're seeking will really be found. But if we withdraw with low energy, we just gradually become smaller and smaller. If we withdraw with higher and higher energy, we begin to transcend. So Swamiji puts it very simply. He says, any true scripture, any true expression of true revelation, he said, is aloof, non-attached, almost stern, is how he puts it. I come not, think not that I come to bring peace. I come to bring a sword to set a daughter against her mother-in-law and a father against his son. I mean, those are, you can't, you can't just take selectively out of the Bible the parts that you like. You know, that's a p- powerful thing. We want to think of it as, oh, happy, everybody loves one another. That's not what Jesus said, nor that's not how he lived. That wasn't the example of his own life. He just stood fearlessly for the truth and literally allowed them to kill him before he would give it up. And even when Pontius Pilate was begging him, you know, don't you understand I have the power to crucify you? Give me some little shred by which I can release you. And then Christ didn't answer him at all or turned to him and said, the only power you have was given to me by given to you by the Heavenly Father. It's not you who have power over me. Even now I could call down legions of angels to rescue me. But God's will be done. I mean, that's what true spirituality is. And as Swami puts it so sweetly, it's not for the faint-hearted. 
And the whole entire direction you see of trying to assert the truth of Jesus' teaching is to bring it down more and more and more and more to the ego's comfortable definition. You know, even Judas is no longer a traitor. Somehow or another, we're trying to work Judas around so that he didn't ever actually do anything really bad, you know, to betray his own master and to sell him for 30 pieces of silver, to be so overwhelmed that he hung himself because of the sin he committed. That didn't really happen. Actually, it was just this little conspiracy between Jesus and Judas, you know, and they just kind of agreed, and Judas just played the part, and actually Jesus was the, Judas was the best one because he had the nerve to do it. I mean, that's what that gospel says. And you just read it and you think, this is bilge. You know, this is really bilge. Where did this come from? And above all, it just has no power. It's just somebody rattling on. I don't know if it's a true old scripture, but listen, just because people are old doesn't mean that they were smarter than us. You know, just, well, sometimes people will get messages from the astral world and, you know, they channel these different entities and you have to realize just because people are dead, it doesn't mean that they're smart either. <laughs> it just means that they're dead. Everybody dies eventually. And some of them can, can reach back or you can hear them, but it doesn't make them brainy or wise in any respect. But there's something really powerful that you heal, you feel. And one of the reasons that we come together as often as we can, and we don't only do things like this, but we try to come together for deep spiritual experiences is so that you have a point of reference, you know? And that's why satsang and community is so fundamental, to have a point of reference. That's why we urge everyone to meditate on your own regularly every day, to listen to spiritual things, to study, so you have a point of reference. If we just live in an ordinary human way, then one even forgets, at least temporarily, that something else is possible. Swamiji points it out, he says, the dilution of religion is when it becomes, as he put it, too accepting of the ego's understanding of things, rather than demanding a constant upward movement. This whole energy also to try to say that Jesus didn't really, uh, what didn't really die, wasn't really resurrected, he just snuck away and got married. And I was just having this discussion with someone, and, and they were saying it to me, and I know it was sincere. And I was so frustrated because I couldn't figure out how to, how to make it clear. He said, well, what does it matter? You know, what if he got married? What does it matter? Well, it, it matters because the Bible declares, Jesus declared that he was a eunuch made by God, is how he, he described it to himself. You know, even the foxes have holes and the holes in which to sleep, and the Son of God has nowhere. He, he was... Who is my father? Who is my mother? Who is my brother? Only he who loves God. There was no commitment to these individual comforts. And yet the ego so wants to, instead of rising up to the level at which Christ lived, we want to just bring him down to the level at we, which we live. This is a deep and serious spiritual mistake. I, I've often said to people, it's all right to say, the mountaintop is that high, and I'm just at the base of the mountain, and I'm not even climbing. I'm just sitting here having a cup of coffee. That's just fine, as long as you just know that's what you're doing. What's really dangerous is, say, where I'm sitting drinking a cup of coffee is the top of the mountain. Because then you have just lost all clarity about your spiritual purpose. You see, and that's why this effort to diminish the absolutely extraordinary challenge of true Christianity 
and bring it down to just, well, that was just in the old days. That was the patriarchal religion. That was this, that was that. It just, it just cuts our own throat spiritually. And we don't have to say that we've achieved it, but we really have to understand that it exists. Or else what aspiration do we have? Both Judaism and Christianity have killed true religion in the most interesting way. By The, the Jews have done it by utterly repudiating Jesus. And the Christians have done it by elevating him to a unique position. Because by making Jesus unique, by losing all sense of reincarnation and the gradual progression of the soul, what we've done is Jesus just appeared all of a sudden. It has nothing to do with us, really. I mean, yes, you can accept him as your personal savior and then you get out of the mess. But you don't actually have to become him. Whereas Sanatana Dharma teaches that these avatars who return are, are souls who went through the very process that we're going through right now of gradually expanding their consciousness and overcoming these incarnations of, of wrong subconscious impressions and holding their consciousness above all of this, this habitual pulling energy to be able to perceive the divine as it really is. And then out of pure compassion, assuming a physical body again out of no compelling need of their own, merely to walk us through that process of liberation. So Jesus' reality is just what he said it is. That which I do, ye shall do, and greater things. You can't be selective. You have to take it like it really, what it really means. If you know Sanatana Dharma, you know exactly what he's saying. He's saying, why do you call me good? That's what he says. A man says to him, good Lord, good friend. Or, um, he says, why do you call me good? He said, don't your, don't your scriptures all say that ye are gods? This was the teaching of Judaism. For that they crucified him. Because if we're all gods, then how can the priests have power over us? Right? And that's the same principle the Catholic churches are using, the churches are using on us. Either to say that nobody can be advanced or that only he could be advanced. And the Jews just took away the concept that a human being can really attain much of anything except righteousness. You know, there's no saints, there's no images, there's no avatars except this waiting for the Messiah who actually came, but we missed him. That's what I asked my dad. Didn't he come? You know, why was he not? You know, we're still, they're, they're still waiting. So they still have that very theoretical idea that the Messiah can come, but they don't understand who the Messiah is. They don't understand that it's our evolution that these masters come to foster. You take that down and nothing is left. And the result is, well, Joseph Campbell, who did all that wonderful work with all those myths and stories, and he talked about that the health of a society is determined by all these myths and stories. And whoever that man who interviewed him, Bill Moyers, is that his name, said to him, he said, what happens when you a culture loses contact with all these you know, myths and stories of their own history. What do you have then? And Joseph Campbell sort of pointed out the window and he said, this. <laughs> it's like when they asked Mahatma Gandhi what he thought of Western civilization and he said he thought it would be a good idea. You know? <laughs> and that's what, that's what we're in danger of seeing now. And of course, the divine is in charge. Jesus is in charge. The masters have come again. But we have to play our own part. You know, it's not that you have to stand on street corners as I am inclined to do 
unless soapboxes appeal to you, and then by all means, get one. But in our hearts, and, and in our, our conversations, and in our opportunities, we have to understand that this is important. You know, we are children of God, and we must hold to that. And the great masters have come not to, as Swamiji puts it, to sort of straighten up the mud puddle and give us some rubber duckies to play with here. They've come to just take us out of it altogether. You know, why would, why would they just want to give us something more to play with here when an infinity of bliss is our actual birthright? Be therefore perfect. That's our, that's our reality. Well, that's all I have to say for this evening. Thank you all very much. Bless you.